expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome to episode 121 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where this is a magical time where nerds gather in a specific area to find out all the wonders of the nerd world. That's right. Of course, we're talking about San Diego Comic-Con, which is going on this week. And dude, again, we're covering again this year. And of course, next week's going to be our San Diego Comic-Con show. Where we're going to recap everything that happened over the weekend. But what's one thing you're looking forward to the most? Well, I mean, I know, and I wanted to preface this by saying this show was, we begun recording this show before the start of San Diego Comic-Con, so if we talk about something that's already been announced, that's why. But one thing that I'm hoping to see as we sit here right now is I want to see how many of the rumors are actually true, because that's one of the funny things about San Diego Comic-Con, the, the rumors are never hotter than a couple of days before San Diego Comic-Con. So are the Batman TV rumors true? Are we going right. to get Oracle on Supergirl or in the DC TV universe? Is Matt Ryan going to get a John Barrowman deal kind of thing? And then there's a lot of Marvel stuff that I'm wondering about as well. Well, yeah, like, like we talked about last week, we, you know, what we learn more possibly about the whole Marvel going to Fox on television, you know, row with X-Men. And, you know, something that's also very interesting, I know... We've talked about it two weeks in a row, but again, Pokemon Go, going from like the small auditorium to pretty much now it's in Hall H. Like, I mean, it's gotten that big where it's Hall H this year. It, it, the thing that, the, that I just don't understand that this is still like the hottest thing going. Yeah. After, I mean, I was, when we were getting ready to go see Ghostbusters, I was driving down what is Virginia Beach Town Center, which is apparently a Pokemon hotbed. Yeah. And at like almost 10 o'clock at night, it's packed with everybody staring down at their phones and they're all in the same area kind of thing. And I'm like, wow, this is insane. It's gotten to the point, dude, where I don't know if you know this, but I got a notification on my phone. I guess Pandora has a Pokemon Go mixtape available. You know, people are selling their Pokemon Go accounts on yeah. eBay. Yeah, too. And they're like for thousands of dollars. And it's like, are you kidding me right now? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, what happens? Yeah. It's like... Not to put on my my old man glasses in my in my pipe, but you know what happened to the good old days? You used to go to a store and buy Pokemon cards and put them in a binder. What was happening with those? You know, you know, it's like you've got I've got my old uh, sports card collection sitting in my closet, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that that's a collection that you, 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 that you could sell. But but can can you imagine like if they had like NFL go where you're walking around, you're like, oh, there's a Joe Theismann. I'm gonna capture him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I don't, I don't know, man. It's just there's, there's got to be more of these coming. I don't know if it'll be as popular as Pokemon, but there's got to be more of these coming. And I think that this is something. You know, I keep thinking, okay, in a couple weeks, it's gonna go away. Oh, yeah. It'll be old hat. Well, maybe not. Maybe this is just not going anywhere because it keeps crashing. They keep opening it in a new country, and every time they open it in a new country, it crashes. <laughs> It's like the end of A Wonderful Life where they're like, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. It's like, teachers say every time Pokemon goes opens in another country, servers crash. <laughs> and that now hackers are claiming responsibility. It's like, guys, you know that every time they open this in a new country, it crashes, right? So you can yeah. take credit for it all you want. We kind of knew it happened. 
Yeah, F Society could say we did it. We'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. You but might be a powerful of, hacker organization, but you didn't do that. And speaking of popularity, we actually have a very popular voice actor coming on this week. That's right. We've got Roger Craig Smith, who's done a lot of the voices that you might not even know. I mean, he's been the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog for years. He voiced Captain America in Avengers Assemble and so many other great characters. He's he's Batman and the Batman Unlimited movies. There's just so many things he's done. I can't wait to talk to him about it. Yeah, and he also did voices, of course, for Naruto and Bleach. But guess what? Come next. We're heading to Mexico as we're going to be diving into a couple of new comic books this week because what we're reading is come next on the Downery Podcast. Uh, hey, this is comic book author and creator Matt Wagner, and you're here with the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we pull our long boxes. We discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you did a comic this week that we actually got to talk to the writer of it. We were in D.C. last month. I'm going to tell you right now, man. I think we've both been waiting over a month to read this thing once we found out about it. Boom Studios had us talk to Justin Jordan at Awesome Con, and he's the writer of Sombra Number 1, which is what I'm going to be reviewing this week, illustrated by Raul Trevino, colors by one, Yushe, and lettered by Jim Campbell, cover by... Gili Pojo, and let me tell you right now, man, we got a nice little, uh, nice little peek into what Sombra was going to be about. Boom Studios gave us a little summary of what the book was going to be about, but we did not get to look at the art at the time. Before I even talk about what this book is about, Raul Trevino, I was not really familiar with his work before this. Maybe I'm ashamed of that. I really am because it is beautiful. When I read it, I text you. I said it is beautifully grotesque and some of the things that they have people in here doing a lot of the injuries it grabs your attention in ways where you might have to like turn your head a little bit away Mm -hmm. from the book from the book or even if you're reading this digitally from your tablet and as as i was and i'm like okay this is very very you know hardcore but again you look at what it's about and you're like okay it needed to be done this way right because what we're doing basically is we're taking the Mexico look at the drug cartel situation. And there's a couple of things right in the beginning where they're telling you about this agent that had gone over there. And there's like, you know, the camera footage where it's like, you know, it's like the execution style camera footage type thing. And one thing that was really given a lot of attention in the art was the staticky portion of the camera. I thought that that piece of attention to detail was like, that's one thing that tells you this this is going to be a legit book because there's going to be no, there's going to be no detail that's going to be left unturned. So basically, we're following the DEA into Mexico to investigate not just the cartels, but there's an agent that's kind of gone AWOL in Mexico named Conrad, and Danielle is another agent that's being sent down there to find out what's going on. Well, not necessarily sent down there because they don't want her to go for various reasons, but there's one specific reason that I won't spoil. Yeah, that she wants to go down there. Yeah, and I like that because. For her, it's a driving force for why she's going down in this dangerous region. And again, it's one of those things where the beginning, it also shows how it grabs you. And again, going back to the staticky stuff and all the dialogue that Justin writes in it and setting up her venture down there, it's like it really, you do get a sense of real danger. Not only that, I mean, there's suspense. What Justin does to keep the suspense at a high level, even in situations you don't expect to be suspenseful, like when she first gets there, she has a meeting with someone, and 
that doesn't feel like it should be a suspenseful moment, but it oh, really but is. It is. It's so tense the entire time she's there, and you could imagine that that's what it would be like when you're dealing with the cartels. You just whisper the name of the cartels, and you're automatically tensed up. I don't care if you're American or if you're somebody that's living in Mexico. You talk about the cartels, you're going to be tensed up no matter who you are. And just like you said, every part of her journey is, is she's trying to look for this guy and find information on him. And there's a couple things that happen, like somebody delivers a message in maybe oh, the yeah. most extreme way that anybody has delivered a message <laughs> ever. I mean, they really need to perfect texting down there because <laughs> this is not how you should be delivering your messages. No, it's really not. But, you know, again, I want to look at the writing really quick. And you just look at, you want, you mentioned that meeting she had with that person when she pretty much first gets down to Mexico. And as you said, it's not supposed to be the suspenseful thing, but the way Justin writes it is, it's very much a like final warning of like, mm-hmm. you know what you're getting yourself into, and I pretty much for the most part can't help you if you go forward with this. Or I can, but not as right. much as you think I can. Right, and the people you seek out might not want to help you either, because again, look who we're dealing with. And now we've got this DEA agent that you know, seems to be a little bit AWOL that also is a part of this little puzzle that I won't put the pieces for you in. You're going to have to read the book. But it kind of reminded me a little bit of Sheriff of Babylon in a way. Yeah. Where Tom took the Iraq war and the occupation in Baghdad to Baghdad from Baghdad's perspective. This is the cartels from Mexico's perspective, but they both do it in such a different way where Justin's really adding a lot of suspense into everything, but he's also adding to the mystery and the investigation aspect. And it's a little bit of a slow burn on the first issue, which is such a great thing because it allows you to keep yourself on edge the entire first issue. We also forgot to mention, this is actually a limited series too, so being able to pull off a slow burn in a limited series is very much a rarity, but it's also a lot of showcasing how how great Justin is as as a writer to make this work. And again, just the suspense is in it. Everything else is so great and wonderful about this, man. So, you know, if if this was my book I was reviewing this week, I'd definitely give this a poll. So what would you give it? I would agree, man. It's definitely a poll for me. You've got to go buy this book, put in your poll box, box to your local shops or digitally, however you're doing it. Just make sure you're buying this book. As a matter of fact, if you're a Spanish-speaking person, they have a Spanish-language version of Sombra as well. So make sure if, you, if you'd if rather read it in Spanish, and there's some Spanish in the English version as well, not stuff that's hard to translate. As a matter of fact, you want to whip out your Google Translator just to make it easy. You're good. But, I mean, we've got two options to go get this book, and either one you take, you really should. But, Nick, you had more of a group feel this week with your book. I did. So, of course, DC Rebirth is this big, big thing. A lot of people getting their own new takes on books and everything else. And Well, I decided to say, hey, Batgirl's coming out, and hey, guess what? She's getting the gang back together, so I decided to read this week Batgirl Birds of Prey Rebirth, number one, of course, from DC Comics. Now, this is really the zero issue leading into the number one, which is going to be coming out soon. But it's written by Julie Benson and Shauna Benson. And Claire Rowe is the artist, and Alan Pesquala did the colors for it. Now, I will say this. James, you've read Birds of Prey before this rebirth, right? Yep. yep. Okay. So, of course, this deals with Batgirl, Dinah Lance, and Huntress. And just from the opening page... Is very much a Sherlock Holmes feel because mm. Batgirl is taking out these thugs and she's doing like, okay, kick to the stomach. That will take the breath away for however long. She, you know, she's measuring her attacks in her mind. And the main synopsis of this is, remember back in the day before she got her back fixed, 
she was known as Oracle, which, of course, she was paralyzed from the Joker and everything like that. It was actually a nice little bring back and memory uh-huh. flash of that in this uh-huh. comic. And so she, the pretty much the synopsis is there's somebody going by the name of Oracle and it's just like giving out these, these such very, very uh, crucial information on the underworld as Oracle. And Barbara needs to find out who is doing this. Yeah, and it's funny because the interior monologue of Barbara Gordon when she's going through her life and everything that happened up to oh, yeah. right now, and even when she gets to that point, it's so well written, and you really you feel it. I mean, obviously, anytime you see that image from the Killing Joke, you're going to feel that no matter what. But you you feel as she takes a trip, not just through that, but as her time as Batgirl as well. You really feel the emotion in it, so I think that that's so well written, and the visuals are just as good to match. Yeah, and again, you know, when you talk about the visuals, the art in this is very, very good. Uh, there were certain slight things I didn't like about it. I think mostly when it came to like the close-ups stuff like that, I felt the faces might have been a little bit off, mm-hmm. but it's not like deal-breaking stuff. But just when Barbara's giving this whole dialogue of like her flashback of like, you know, growing up and then being shot with the Joker, there's just so much detail in the words and it causes you to pay attention. Like she says, she goes, I don't know she's talking about getting shot by a Joker. She, there's a line where she pretty much says, I don't remember his pasty white skin when I got shot. I remember his Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, yeah. And, and it causes you to look at that Hawaiian shirt and you're like, Wow, like that shit, like it causes, well, she wasn't, look at the gun, she was staring at the shirt, and mm-hmm. she's kind of like, you now that's kind of like freaked her out a little bit, and everything like that to this day, but the person I think that really takes this book away, I mean, you know, Black Canary's in this, but Huntress really steals the show in this, I felt. Yeah, man, I mean, we're getting the brutal Huntress, and I think that that's a good thing, and they actually reference Spiral and her time of grace and stuff like that, so they're not throwing that away, and that actually is kind of, it seems like that's driving her in a certain way, too, which I think is, is going to be very interesting going forward. Yeah, of course, you know, the the scene where they first introduce Huntress, outside the other comics, of course, but in this series, when she's in the confessional and then there's something that's shown afterwards, you're like, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, it's pretty intense. It's, it's a really, really intense introduction to her and again the art in this for the most part is very very good again there's just certain things that are kind of hits and misses but again it's not a deal breaker the writing in this really really good it's kind of got me intrigued as to how they're going to be working together because remember at this point barbara talked about how her and dinah didn't have you know they were friends and then they went their separate ways of course there was mention of her band and them coming together again and it's really, really interesting, the dynamic that Barbara and Dinah have in this. It's going to be a very interesting dynamic. And for me, for the, for the art, it's, it's hard because I think Babs Tarr did such a great job when she was doing Batgirl and, of course, Rafa when he was doing the covers there, Rafa mm-hmm. Albuquerque. It, it's hard because you kind of got used to that because now you see the new suit and you kind of associate it with them. So when you see it drawn by somebody else, it's, it's a little bit taken aback. And, again, it's not that the art is bad. It's just you kind of got used – you were just kind of getting used to that and, that and now the art's changed a little bit. So I think that might be a little bit of a factor too. Yeah, so my rating for this, I'm going to give this – I'm going to give it – it's just, I think, grabs me enough for a poll. And the reason why I say that is because of the fact of the writing in this, while I do have the interesting dynamic, my only fear is that Huntress is going to run away with it. 
And she's going to overcast and overshadow Batgirl and Black Canary. That's my only fear. So that's why I'm just giving it just enough for a pull. And keep keep in mind, too, Batgirl's also getting her own book. Right. So then there's that, too. Are they going to allow Huntress to steal the show in this book? Because they're like, ah, Babs is getting her getting another book. So we'll just let Huntress and Dinah run with this one. It really makes me want a Huntress comic, though, I will say oh, that. Oh, yeah. If we get a limited series, I know we'll be talking about this with our San Diego Comic-Con coverage. But if we get, like, a limited series of a character like Huntress, I think that would be great. Give us six issues, man. Yeah, man, but come next. We went to go to the movies this weekend. Of course, we saw a Ghostbusters remake. What do we think about it? Might shock you. Come next, a reboot of Ghostbusters 2016 on Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Chris Vance from Supergirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, whether you're afraid or not afraid, you probably went to see Ghostbusters this past weekend or sometime during the week, and this week we're going to give our spoiler-filled review, and I want to preface this right now. Uh, Nick and I are very fair-minded people. We are not looking to be controversial. We are not looking to say certain things or act certain ways. We are here to review a movie. There's nothing about sexism going on here. We're not trying to bag on anybody. We're not trying to put anybody down. We're just trying to tell you whether or not we liked the movie that was been put before us. And Nick, you and I were talking about something off air that we thought really, really went out of hand. Yeah, and listen, you cannot like a movie, but when you start tweeting an actress or an actor and you tweet them hate speech, you treat you tweet them racist imagery and just racist words and words that have nothing but hurt behind them, you're an asshole. And the fact you hide behind anonymity and do that makes you even more of an asshole who sh- honestly poison a platform like Twitter and you ruin it for everybody who wants to get closer to people who are these famous people, who are these actors, actresses, gamers, whatever you want to call it, say. You know, Leslie Jones this week got a flurry, a flurry of racist tweets on Monday. And it caused her to walk away from Twitter. Now, at this moment, her Twitter is still up. But I believe she's just going to be leaving it dormant. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she'll be back or not, but... Uh, there was a portion she just left Twitter. Now, again, before we dive into the movie itself, listen, you can now like a movie, but don't ruin it for other people. Don't be a dick. Don't don't spread fear and hatred and and and, and hide behind anonymity because when you do that, you make all of us look bad. Because you want to know how many tweets I've seen from people saying, "Oh, you're just these." These fanboys and everything else. Listen, there are Ghostbusters fanboys who don't say shit like that. Right, right. And, and to put a label on, on anybody, or any of us, or anybody who's a fan of Ghostbusters for a bunch of people who post shitty things. And, uh, again, I, I was just – I just looked at the tweets that she was getting and I was heartbroken, man, because, I mean, yeah. it's just – she didn't deserve it. Nobody deserves to have death threats right. and hate speech fucking tweeted to them or written to them or even said to them. Even if she was bad in the movie, and we'll get to whether or not we thought she was good in the movie coming up in a few minutes, but even if she was bad, what what is the point? What are you uh, yeah. trying to accomplish with that? You know, I mean, it's, And the, the Harold Ramis thing, too, that was ridiculous as well. Yeah. People yeah. speaking out against I mean, cause come on, people, and don't generalize our, our fandom, okay? Don't generalize all nerds based on a few assholes, please. I mean, I, I know it's hard because it seems like that the vocal people and the people that get all the retweets and stuff are the hateful people. 
let's let's let it stop, man. Let's try and do what we can to get these idiots off of Twitter. Let's get the idiots off of Twitter. And let's let the funny people and the creative people and the cool people stick around. That's what we need to do. And without further ado, James, let's dive into the actual movie. So, of course, this is the 2016 version of Ghostbusters directed by Paul Feig. And pretty much we all know the cast of characters that are in this. And here's the thing. You have characters in Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy who were once friends, but for some odd reason, Kristen Wiig went to more of a, hey, I'm going to go work at Columbia with Melissa McCarthy and, and Holtzman, uh, you know, pretty much go to work at this, this was it, like a secondary science It's like a school? science institute kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's, like, it's almost like a community college science type deal, yeah. Yeah, so pretty much something happens which causes them to get together and say, hey, let's go... You know, find these ghosts and stuff like that. And I'm not gonna lie, I saw this in about a theater of about 30 people. And the opening of this movie, it's causes the thing that caused them to get together again. I wasn't laughing. I felt yeah. a lot of the jokes in the beginning fell flat, and a lot of jokes throughout this movie fell flat. I think so too, and I think that that's one of the main points of the movie. And I thought that one of the funny things was is that there was so much attempt at humor that just didn't didn't land. It just didn't hit. There were some things that were funny throughout the movie, but there were either things that fell flat or there were things that wore thin as the movie went on, I think. Right, and and things that, that wore on, of course, I think it was Kate McKinnon's character, Holzman. Now, I know back when this trailer came out, we were talking about it, we first thing we said was, hey, Kate McKinnon's going to be the one I think that steals the show, but as the movie went on, she just kind of grinded me down a yeah. little bit. Yeah, I and agree. One thing I don't like in certain comedies and a lot of movies is that you, you have a character you literally can't see yourself in real life or even in the movie having a serious conversation with because everything they say is either a joke, they try to be funny, and it's like, okay, what's the point? Her humor kind of, at first it was funny, but then it just it weighed down on me as it went on. Right, it's like at first you're like, this chick is crazy, I love this, this, this is a really good character, but then it, there was no off switch. It was like it was like Jim Carrey on an unlimited battery. It was Pretty really much. just, it was over the top all the time. And even in Jim Carrey's best movies and best days, there was, you know, even in, in the Ace Ventura days, there was still a little bit of off in those performances as well. There was no off switch on this performance at all. It was just on, on, on all the time. And by the middle of the movie, you're going, okay. And I think that, you know, they mentioned the stuff with the jokes and stuff like that and how he mentioned how they didn't land. A lot of that felt, I don't know about you and how closely you were looking at the cuts when they were going from scene to scene or, or character to character. But the editing felt like they were about to get to a punchline and then they just edited it to either to a new scene or yeah. somebody else saying a different piece of dialogue. Yeah, it's funny that, that that ended up happening. As a matter of fact, you want to talk about editing. I thought that there was... There was a couple of big missed opportunities in this movie, actually. When Kristen Wiig's character is talking about uh, how she first encountered ghosts when she was a young girl and right. nobody believed her kind of thing. And it was this heartfelt story. And she's like, Abby's the only one that believed me. Most of McCarthy's character. That was a nice heartfelt moment. And as I'm watching the movie, I keep waiting for a callback to that. And they just never went back to it. And that was, to me was the biggest missed opportunity of this movie. Well, I mean, the only callback was when they used the... They, I think it was Melissa McCarthy towards the end of the movie called her Ghost Girl, so it's kind of like a, a bad attempt at bringing a, uh, a certain important or background of a character full circle. It felt very lazy. Uh, but, you know, when I look at, again, people who kind of... And I mean, we might differ on this, but people who kind of rub us the wrong way, Chris Hemsworth's character... 
I don't know how a person like that gets through life and not die early. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, man. This was one of those things for me where it was so dumb yeah. that it was funny. I could not laugh. Like when he, the thing with the glasses. But you want to know why? That was did, hilarious for me. You know why they did that glasses joke though? Because I guess the, I think it's a cinematographer or a director of photography, he hates shooting glasses because of the glare. So he had them take the lens out. And then that was actually, I think, I believe they said that that was actually not even in the script. That was just, Hemsworth just did that. And that's the thing though. Well, who would have thought that Chris Hemsworth had this comedic timing? Yeah. I mean, you got to say one thing, whether you thought it was funny or not, the guy has comedy in him, and I never would have thought in a million years. I mean, years he has comedy that, in him. That he would have been able to do that. I'm not I'm, saying all the jokes no, are funny. No, it was just it was just one of those things where when he was talking, I know what he was saying was funny, but it was just, at the back of my mind, I couldn't get rid of, like, oh my God, this guy is so dumb. How could you, like, not die at the age of four? You well, know, it's, like, it's, it's a facepalm moment for us if we know somebody like that in real life. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally get that. But it, to me, it was just funny. And no, it wasn't funny all the time, but he was funny most of the time. So that is one thing I actually really did But the did person enjoy. who I actually liked in this moment, I liked Leslie Jones because her character, you know, listen, when you watch the trailers, a lot of people are scared because they're saying, oh my God, she's going to be a stereotypical black woman. Mm-hmm. They actually, it's not as bad as people thought it was going to be. Right. And I'll tell you this, that there was a scene in the movie, and I guess it's spoiler filled, so I can, I can give it away. Yeah. Where she's got the big, like, dragon on her shoulder right right and my wife you've heard my wife laugh before yeah yeah, yeah, yeah when leslie jones is like i'm just gonna walk away i'm just i'm not don't don't tell me don't. my <laughs> wife is next to me crying <laughs> laughing in the theater and she's laughing so hard that other people are laughing right. in the theater and our theater was pretty full mention, actually the scene with the mannequins that was freaky as shit that was really freaky i'll give them that i mean we'll get to the ghost a little bit later but the mannequin thing that was straight up freaky but, i will give them that but leslie jones's character there are times where she is a bit stereotypical but, again, it's not like it was in the trailers where you thought, oh, my God, right. it's like down to an 11. And that's not her fault either, no. I don't think. That was no. not and, and a little bit of a highlight on this, too, is, you know, to, to me, this movie was more – it was really – it wasn't bad. I didn't hate the movie. It just felt, as you said, there's a lot of missed opportunities. It was very mediocre. And I think the reason is is Paul Feig as a yeah. director because, yeah. listen, he turned this down three times before signing on to this movie. So you have a director who already turned this project down three times at the helm of this – it's going to feel uninspired. That's why I felt it was. Not only that, but did you notice, and, and this is something I picked up on throughout the movie, did you notice that, that that more than once, quite a few times actually, there was a reference of, you know, trying to overcome the haters kind of thing. And yeah. I'm like, my God, you're putting this in the movie? What are yeah. you foreshadowing here? And did that need to be a main theme of this movie just because you thought there would be backlash over this movie? I could have done without that. I mean, obviously, when you're starting something new, especially something that has to do with the paranormal, you're going to deal with that on the internet anyway. But I thought that there was that underlying theme of, well, everybody's probably going to hate this movie, so let me throw this in as a theme. And again, that's on feed to me. It's like, if you would have come up with something a little bit more original to do with this movie, maybe right. people wouldn't have hated it. It had nothing to do with well, your cast. Well, the woman who actually wrote it, or he co-wrote it with Feig, was actually the, the scene where there she's the realtor in the firehouse. Mm-hmm. That's actually the person who wrote this, uh, co- or co-wrote this, I believe. And uh, the thing is, is I look at this movie and, again, you look at the characters, and I gotta say, man... You know, we'll get to, I want one thing before I want to get to the to the cameos, but 
this movie suffered from the worst villain ever. Ever. Everything ever. about it. Everything because, about this villain was awful. Because the villain, Rowan, in this pretty much is, if you took Reddit, rolled up into a ball, and put it inside of a human, that's who Rowan, Rowan is. Mm-hmm. And there's no real backstory as to why he's doing what he's doing with the dimensions and the ghosts. So then they made fun of you, Rowan. Who? Yeah, people, like, his whole reasoning for doing this is people suck. Really? Yeah, really? Like, there's no other exposition. There's no other depth you could have gone with not, this. Not to mention, this is what you decided to do about it. And so there's, of course, I will say it's the scene where they're actually fighting the ghosts. I thought it was pretty cool. However, when they're slamming the ghosts into the ground and they're kind of killing them, I'm like, that makes no sense. Yeah, that makes no sense at all. And and aren't proton packs? Aren't they pullers, not pushers? And well, even you know, the stuff, other thing, even stuff, stuff you use like a proton ship or like that. I'm like, you do know like everything that they use is a nuclear bomb, pretty much, right? Well, they reference that too, actually. Yeah. And and at one point when they're trying to close the portal there, but and I mean, okay, I'm just gonna say this, and people will probably get mad at me, but when he takes his form. And the form is an evil version of the Ghostbusters logo. Yeah. I went, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Come on. And it, then how they dispose of him, it's like, oh, yeah, that's cheap. The, how they dispose of him is really, really cheap. And, and you know, this is a sport field review, so we'll just say it. Three, two, one. Yeah, they shoot him with the proton packs in the penis. And pretty much it allows him to loosen his grip and he gets sucked into a portal. And the problem I had with that was, that with this movie was, you look at the original 1984, and the thing was, there's a lot of callbacks in this movie to the original, to a point where it got in its way and started trampling over yep. it, because it didn't know whether it wanted to be a reboot, that to, to, to be, and set itself as just a reboot, or it wanted to be a fan service thing film, because when you look at the 1984 version, it set up rules, and, you know, don't cross the streams. And then, at the end, you felt like, that they're willing to sacrifice themselves. They say, hey, we could die from crossing these streams, but it's the only way to save the yeah. world yeah. and save New York. You felt like, oh, man, there's substance behind this selfless act. Whereas with this, it's like, let's just shoot him in the dick, and then that's going to save the world. And then, remember, in the original, there was marshmallow stuff everywhere. The city was trash. And this one's like, nope, he goes down the portal. Everything goes back to being normal. Really? It, like... It, Really? You want, to talk about, you want to talk about going back to the original. I think that there's a point that needs to be made here. There, remember the scene right before they cross the streams where they're looking at each other and it's like, see you on the other side, right? Yeah, where, yeah. Where it was like a coming together. It's like, okay, we really might die, but it was been, it's been, this has been a great ride and we're do, we've done something great. This movie didn't have that moment. No. Not for one second. Did not have this moment. There was a little bit of chemistry between Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy's character. I didn't feel that as a whole. Even if, even at the end, when they're yeah, all sitting was, down together, I didn't yeah. feel the camaraderie. Yeah, there was no... Like, you felt that there was chemistry between Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy because it was set up in the beginning that, that hey, they grew up together. But when you have Patty and you have Holtzman in there in the group, you're like, they don't fit. You know, no, and the, everybody a third, fourth wheel in this. Everybody in this movie was playing a singular character that just happened to be in a group. Yeah, everybody was playing their own part, but they weren't playing it as a team. And again, that is not the fault of the cast. No, the it's cast the was fine. And I will say this flat out: I'm not really a fan of Kristen Wiig's or Melissa McCarthy's in general. Yeah, I thought they were fine. Yeah. I didn't think they were great. I didn't think they were bad, but I thought they were fine. And I thought that. 
uh, we didn't get the stereotypical fat woman falling over thing from Melissa McCarthy, so I was happy about that. I will that. say this, though. The scene where she's trying out the proton pack for the first time, I was I was laughing in my that seat. That was funny. That was funny. I was I laughing in my that. seat at that. Yeah, that and, was funny. And again, uh, just, just you know, really quick, the cameos in this. Listen, the problem with this was, as I said before, they put so many references and, and so many callbacks into from the original 1984 version into this one that I'm like, hey, why not just if you're gonna do cameos, make them who they were in the in the movie, you know, in the movie right, exactly. from back then, exactly. you know, but have them like retired or be like, no, no, I'm not. I've spent too many times, too many years doing that stuff, and I walked away, you know, like. And can I say, like, the worst of this was Bill Murray's. Bill Murray just looked like he just didn't want to be there, man. I will say this, too. I think the worst is one that's not even a real actor. It was Slimers. Yeah. Really? He's going to steal a car? How does he drive the car? Right. He's going to steal the car. And he got, and he got Miss Slimer, too? <laughs> that one, to me, that one was the worst. I hated that. But the only one for me that really worked and made sense was Ernie Hudson's. See, well, Ernie Hudson's, you can tell was telegraphed. Like I knew that he was going to be Leslie's well, yeah, uncle yeah. because I'm like, okay, he owns the Hearst and you know, he's going to be in it. And you, cause you know, they got the entire cast and I'm like, his worked up to a point where then they cut away. Cause this was the last cameo. And it was actually part of the last scene in this. And you knew it was going to entail the whole, how, you know, I have this funeral. I have, you know, where's my car kind of thing. You know, you knew it was going to be that, but I felt that even then they just cut to credits. So soon I'm like, you had a scene here that was building, and you cut it so early. Right. One thing I will say, and this goes to your point about the movie not knowing what it wants to be. When they had them in the Chinese restaurant, yeah. in like the attic, and that was their headquarters, I thought that was so smart. It's like, don't put them in the fire station again. We yeah. don't need to do that. And I actually liked that they put them in the Chinese restaurant. Then at the end, they're in the fire station, and I'm like... No, right. No, no, no. Not to mention you spent all this crap time with these jokes about the friggin wontons and stuff in the soup. You set that up and then you throw it all away by putting them in the damn fire station. Right, right. And, and you know, before we get to our ratings, I do want to mention the end cred sequence because there is one in here. And pretty much what it entails is, and again, this is a spoiler-filled review, so if you don't like the, want to hear what this, the end cred sequence is, fast forward a few minutes. Pretty much they're sitting around in the firehouse because after saving the city, the city pretty much says, hey, whatever you want, we'll give it to you. And they say, we want the firehouse. So they're in the firehouse now. Uh, they're sitting around. Of course, Leslie Jones is listening to this audio. and You know, Patty is listening to this audio. And as soon as I saw her, I'm like, don't do it. Don't fucking do it. And she goes, guys, what's Zool? And I'm like, oh, God. And the reason why I did this was because they planned, Sony's saying, Sony came out this week and said, hey, we're doing a sequel, matter how much money it made. And well, mind you, $144 million budget, so far has only made $44 million back at this time. Listen, it just shows the lack of originality in writing. You want to be a reboot? Again, same thing I said with the whole Star Wars thing back, back in December. You know, be original. If you want to be a reboot or whatever, an extension, just like don't have too many callbacks. Stand on your own. Set up something to stand on your own. And now they're more likely to be bringing in Zool now for the sequel? Like, come on. Yeah, and I mean, the logo, if you want to make that the same, that's fine. I get it. Use the logo. Fine. You want to use, okay, it was a hearse. Fine. You let the Ghostbusters, let the let the Ecto be the same thing that it that it's gonna be. Fine. Right. Switch the roles. 
none of that matters. You had to have an original story, and I think that they didn't know, okay, should we be original or should we not? And that was a, it was like, at times the movie was falling down the stairs. You yeah. Know? It's like you, you had me, and then you lost me, and then you had me, and then you lost me, and then the whole almost end of the movie, I'm like, I, I can't, I can't get behind it. Yeah, man, and again, I just see that, and I'm like, and I think this movie wouldn't have gotten as much of a backlash had it not been called Ghostbusters, had it been called like Ghostbusters Full Throttle or Ghostbusters. All they had to do. Ghostbusters A New Generation. Or the, uh, yeah, all they had to do was call it The New Ghostbusters. Yeah. That's it. That's all they had to do. Right. Was call it The New Ghostbusters. And a lot of the stuff, and you say, oh, it's just a title. Okay. Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice was just a title too then. No, well, it wasn't. Well, and it had an effect on the movie. Right. Once you saw it. And so did this. Right. And again, the people who are saying, well, you can't compare this to original. Yes, you can, because it's the same name. You know, this isn't Ghostbusters. You said the Ghostbusters, you know, the new Ghostbusters, the Ghostbusters next generation. This is Ghostbusters. But now, instead of just saying Ghostbusters, you had to put in parentheses 2016. Right, exactly. You know, so without further ado, let's give our ratings. Do you want to go first or want me to go first? I'll let you go first. Okay, so again, this wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, and I will say this. Leslie Jones was good. I felt Melissa McCarthy was good. Uh, everybody was good. It was just like, I think Kate McKinnon's character, Holtzman, was a little bit too uh, on 11 for me, as was Chris Hemsworth's character. And I know a lot of people were saying, oh, well, how come every guy this is dumb? It's like, it's a comedy. Who cares? You know? My thing is, I look at this from a writing's perspective and a fact of when you reboot something, you want to be able to stand on its own and be its own embodiment, especially if you're rebranding it in a sense and giving it to a new era of people. And even in this case, you know, you bring in the female gender as well, which is great because, you know, it's, it's being inclusive. You're showing, you know, hey, you know, both sides. My thing, though, is is that you look at this movie and, again, the writing is just not there. Uh, a lot of jokes fell flat. The the Rowan, I think, is one of the most forgettable villains ever. Uh, in, in a series, and just again, there's no motivation. You felt there was a lot of lack of motivation. The editing I felt was poor, and overall, I'm gonna give this. I'll give this about three and a half out of ten ghosts because I mean, this movie if it's on Netflix, I will watch it on Netflix. You know, right? And I was gonna say the same thing when I started off. This is one of those movies that it's not gonna be in my Blu-ray collection. If it just happened to be on, like, Showtime or something, and I was there and nothing better to do, I'd probably throw it on and watch it. But when I watched this movie, I didn't see an all-female cast. I didn't see any of the stuff that everybody on Twitter seems to be arguing about and, and, and just throwing out there. What I saw was a movie that fell flat comedically. I saw a movie that had an underdeveloped villain whose name you won't even remember this time next week. I also saw no teamwork. I saw a lack of originality in a lot of places. I saw stuff get thrown away that I wished didn't get thrown away that could have made this movie a little bit better. And then, like you said, the end credit stinger where it's like, Oh man, I really hope that that that's not what they were going to do. There were some redeeming things about this. I did like Chris Hemsworth. I thought he was funny. I did like, you know, that maybe Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy were a lot better than I thought they were going to be. And again, I like what you said. This wasn't as bad 
as I thought it was going to be. But because of so many missed opportunities and so many things that this movie could have been and the fact that there was an error in title and a lot of errors in the writing as well, I'm going to have to give this five flaming crotches out of ten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great rating. But that's come, an image right there. That's, 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 that's an image. What we did see on the big screen when we saw this movie. But uh, come next. We have a lot of nerd news to dive into. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy come up next. Hi, I'm Court Lane, VP of Animation Development at Marvel. And I'm listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, normally we go around the interwebs and see what's trending, but hey, guess what? Due to certain Wi-Fi restrictions at SDCC, we kind of can't, but it's time anyways for Nerd Nerd News! And speaking of the Wi-Fi problem, yeah, Wi-Fi has been, listen, when you go to cons, Wi-Fi is an issue based on where you are. For example, when we were at AwesomeCon... The Wi-Fi situation was kind of bad because of where it was. Now, yeah. it was in an awesome convention center, but because of where it was in terms of it was in pretty much underground. And essentially, you had to go below ground to, to get to the con. And here, Comic-Con saying, hey, all you press people and everybody else joining the con, guess what? No free Wi-Fi. And guess what? If you're a media member, you have to go into the works the workspace area for media members. Yeah, there's a media like room or something that you can go in. Yeah, because we all know at Comic-Con they actually stream the uh panels which they don't. You know, it's not this isn't this right. isn't E3. Right. No. Well, I mean, it, like you said, if you go to any con, large or small, your Wi-Fi is going to suck, okay? Oh, I'm just yeah. going to put that out there right now, especially if you're media, it's not really much better than if you're a con goer. So yeah, you're probably going to be chewing up data. A little bit, but you know, you, I don't know if the, you know, the conspiracy theorist in me wants to be like, this is a ploy to keep people from being oh. able to leak stuff out and mm-hmm. all this well, other stuff. Well, we, we, we remember we were talking about it a while ago. We were talking about, like, you know, D23 and everything else like that. And we're like, hey, a lot of studios are starting to pull out of SDCC. Mm-hmm. Because of stuff like this, because of leaks and everything else, whether they're planned by the studios or not, they're still happening. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, man. I think that, you know, the reason why we're talking about this is because, you know, when you go to cons and, you know, listen, Wi-Fi, and even in some cases, 4G might not even be the best Nope. Thing, Depending you're on your get... carrier, too. I mean, let's exactly. put that out there. But, I mean, let's, but the, the thing is, like, they just had the All-Star game for Major League Baseball there, I believe, last year, a couple weeks ago. And then you also had, listen, they said, hey, we've got this connection with Cox Communications to where there's hot spots around downtown San Diego. Yep. But, again, they're not in the convention center, which is very odd, you know? You know, it's funny. It's almost This is almost like SDCC puffing out their chest again because it's like, oh, we're big enough because you would think – that because you want your stuff to go viral as much as right. possible these days, that you would put as many Wi-Fi or Internet-capable areas as you could so people could tweet out their pictures and, and experiences that they're having at the con in real time instead of having to wait till they go outside or go back to their hotel to be able to post all this stuff. So I, I don't know why you wouldn't be a little bit more Wi-Fi friendly. I have no idea. And speaking of being friendly, James, you know, whenever you go to a con, a lot of people at booths that are represented by, you know, publishers and everything else. They're very friendly. Mm-hmm. But imagine, if you will, 
whenever we go to a con, you know, you wait in line, you get your thing signed, and then you go on your merry way. Well, DC is doing something totally different this year, and they're introducing a lottery system. And I want to get your thoughts on this. I have some really interesting thoughts on this. Well, I'm not normally a fan of lottery system because I know Ticketmaster did this with their uh, with their ticket systems a long time ago where they'd hand out raffle tickets and basically it was just to discourage people from getting there at like crack of dawn camping right. out waiting for whatever panel and you also have to keep in mind that let's say scott snyder is signing at three o'clock but a couple of other people that are le- a little bit lesser known with lesser known books are signing at earlier times well people are going to get in line for snyder and just be like oh i'm just in line for snyder go around me so what i think they're trying to do i'm not saying it's going to work what they're trying to do is keep from getting a log jam at the D.C. area and the D.C. signing table. And actually, I saw something earlier today where D.C. had something posted up that said, please arrive no earlier than 30 minutes before the actual signing period. In other words, you've got your wristband, you're good, you don't need to be here more than 30 minutes early. So I think what they're trying to do is create a law and stop creating a log jam, but I think they're gonna do, no matter whether it ends up being good or bad, is make some people angry. Well, and, and here's I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate and play a little bit of the other side. I'm gonna start with the other side first. When you read this article and you and even when you're at SCCC and you see like they're saying, hey, go to the sales pavilion, I believe it is, and wait in line there to get your ticket and then wait in line again. So you're like you're waiting in line to pretty much play the lottery is what you're doing. It's like going to Disneyland. <laughs> well, except you don't know if you're going to be able to ride the rides at Disneyland, though. You well, know what I'm saying? Right, right. But, I mean, there's always times where you're waiting in line to wait but in say line. For so example, but say, for example, uh, to use Scott Snyder again, say, for example, you don't get to see Scott Snyder, so you can't get your stuff signed by him. Okay, then you're like, oh, well, you can wait in line again. It's like, I don't want to because Scott's only signing at this day and this time and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, it, it's just, it's a double-edged sword because yeah, it's like... Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, because it's like, on the fan side of it, hey, I was here first, I waited in line, I should be able to see this person. Especially because some people plan going to certain conventions just to see one or two people. But on the other side... You do want traffic to be flowing, and I understand that the size of Awesome Con is totally different than the size of San Diego Comic Con. But remember, we were talking about you know the Image booth and or the mm-hmm. Third Eye Comics booth with when Scotty was there, so like then how great they had the line, everything was moving mm-hmm. so freely and flowingly. Yeah. Again, I understand the spaces are different, are totally different, but still, it's like you're telling me you can't get something like that. You know? Well, I mean, again, but uh, again, but this is SDCC, which on a on a scale is probably ten times bigger. Oh, than I didn't know that. On, with ten times more people coming, and for the more pop for the more popular creators, I get this. Okay, I actually understand this for more popular creators. But why do this for every signing? Right. That's my only. That's my only real issue with it. If you want to do this for stuff like you know Tom for Batman or Scott Snyder for All Star Batman, maybe even Tomasi for Super. I mean, if you've got like the big, big your big books and Jeff Johns people like that, okay, fine. But for books like, and I'm not belittling anyone here, but for like uh, Joshua Williamson for Flash, right. wouldn't you want pretty much everybody possible? Right. To go up to that booth and talk to him and get their flash book signed. So, 
I think for stuff like that, it's a little bit like everybody's going to camp out for Jim Lee and there's going to be a freaking mess of people. So I understand you not wanting to have a log jam and and then people walked up to the, up to the line and go screw this I'm not doing this and not to mention how many hours are you going to be in line you're going to be able to do anything else at the con right and again that kind of goes to the detriment side as well because it's kind of like okay wait in line in this pavilion to get a lottery to get a raffle ticket for this thing here but then I don't get to go so now I got to spend more time in this pavilion line to go again and say well you know I want to go to this panel but. God, I really want to see you know Tom King or whomever at the DC table. Oh, God, so I got to wait in here for like 30 minutes to an hour to get another rifle ticket. If I don't get in that time, then just screw well, it. Well, the thing know? about the good thing about the wristbands is you'll know how many people are in line, and you'll know how long away, it's going to take to get through the line. A way I think that would have been better, I think the lottery system was probably saying like, hey, this – like kind of like a ticket system, not pay, but just be like, okay – you can get one or two max of who you can get signed or go see or whatever like that. And it's like, okay, we have, just for to, for numbers' sake, we have 500 for Tom King, we have you know, 500 for Scott Snyder, and whatever, and so on and so forth. Once those are gone, those are gone. You know? Yeah, but, or, that, but or, then or do, there's your double-edged sword again. Right. You know? You, there's really no winning in this scenario. Because no. then you're going to sell out the more popular creators and you're left holding the bag with some of these other people. And the thing is, too, is that the lottery system, I think what DC's did this, and they did this before the con started, they announced before the con started, is uh, a friend of ours, Anna Mia, was talking about how she was going to the fun to go to the Funko booth, and I guess they let general admission people in the line before, like, I guess, special guests or whatever like that, and that caused everything pretty much to be, like, tickets just to be sold out. So it's just, it's a clusterfuck, pretty much. I'm not sure anybody has the right answer, though. That's the thing. I mean, what's the right answer? Yeah. I mean, because either way, whether there's tickets or not, whether there's wristbands or not, you're going to wait in line no matter what, first of all. Right. Second of all, if there are wristbands or tickets, you're still going to wait in line, and you're never going to stop the diehards from getting there early. That's my point. Even if there is a wristband or a lottery system, they're still going to want to be the first ones to get the lottery ticket, even though nine times out of ten, the first few people online don't get what they're looking for. So, I mean, if you were to, before we went to our final story, if you were to try to fix this, and try, I mean, I know you can't make everybody happy, but what to you would be the best way possible? Um, well, th- remember, Comic-Con does this sort of thing when they're selling their badges in the first place, so it makes it fair for everybody, and there was a controversy that was started about that as well. I think the only real thing that you can do, unfortunately, is just do it old school. Just... Whoever shows up, shows up. But again, you're going to fight those however many people that are just going to get there and just camp out. I, I just think that you don't do the wristbands ahead of time. You do the wristbands at the table 30 minutes before the thing. You hand out bands, have a bunch of people hand out bands and be like, okay, here's everybody that's going to get to come up. If you have numbers X through, and if you have numbers whatever through whatever, you get in. Otherwise, see you at the next one kind of thing. My take is do it the old school route. Again, yeah, we're going to have that pe- those people that are going to be like, I wait here since 6 a.m. for Jim Lee or whomever. You're going to have that no matter what, especially with the big names. So, listen, the only rule I would have is you have a limit on how much stuff you can get signed. Like, you only can get, like, yeah. two, two, maybe three comics signed. Don't come. Don't be a jerk. And show up to the booth with a trough, you know, a, a cart full of comics, right. you know. 
Uh, have a limit on that because that'll make the line move a lot faster. And again, people camping out, that's been a thing of Comic-Con for like a long time, just the stories of people camping out. I camped out this way. Hey, if people want to camp out, let them. Like, you know, make, and, and when they pick up their badges or whatever, or, or when they buy them online or whatever, have them sign a thing of like, hey, if you camp out, we are not responsible for anything that happens. Right? Yeah. It probably happens now. But do it the old school way. Have a limit on what, how much stuff can get signed. That way people can see who they have. And if they get to a point where like, hey, Tom King's only signing from this time, this time, and then he leaves by the time you get there, hey, tough shit. You know, well, hey, at least you waited in line. At least you were given the right. opportunity to wait in line, you know? Or how about this? You, you create like a rope system or something. And right. then once you get once you hit the end of the line, that's it. Right, exactly. You know, it doesn't matter how many people are there or when they got there. Once, like, once you reach this point, mm-hmm. that's it. We're done. Because they do that at theme parks all the time. They're like, if you're standing here, you will be on your ride in 30 minutes kind of thing. Right. So just do that. Just put a line on the floor or, or rope it around and be like, once we get to this point, that's the cutoff. We're not accepting any more people. Exactly. And our final story deals with Star Trek. So, James, we went to Awesome Con last month. Of course, we uh, got to sit in on Carl Urban's panel, and they were talking about how, and he was talking about how, hey, this might be my last Star Trek movie because he talked about you know his contract, I believe, hasn't been renewed or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of like, hey, will there be a Star Trek four? And pretty much, J.J. Abrams says, yeah, we got some ideas brewing for Star Trek four. And it involves, of course, reuniting Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth. Which is very, very interesting. And they also mentioned in the same article, which is from comicbook.com, that the rest of the cast is expected to rejoin for the next movie. Now, is expected and are are two very different things. Right. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's set in stone yet. But the fact that the very intention is to bring everybody back, I think is really, really intriguing, especially if we're going to do this whole Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth thing. So, I mean, where do you think, where do you, where do you take this at this point? Obviously, since we haven't seen Beyond yet, I mean, what do you do? I think what you do is, the way I think they're going to do the whole Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth thing, because remember, they've, they've talked about, Abrams pretty much said the whole timeline thing, you know, it's not, you know, uh, uh, they're talking about pretty much how, I think it's going to be a time travel thing. Like, they're not connected to one set timeline, I believe. But I think what we could see is a thing like we saw with Spock and old Spock. You know, I right. think we can see that with Kirk and his uh, and his father. Ah, Tiberius. Yes. You tricky devil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm all I'm all for having more of these movies anyway, so I'm not um, I'm certainly not upset about it. And I certainly think if you're going to do another one, you might as well you know put the band back together. I know that we were talking before about uh, how maybe they'll just reset and go with an all new cast and do like a different generation type well, deal. But it looks like they they want to keep the train moving, and I don't know if that's based on uh, box office estimates or anything like that. You know that kind of stuff works. So maybe they're just thinking, hey, we need to keep this train moving. Well, remember Abrams, what he did with his universe is he made alternate timelines and reality is a big part of that universe. Right. I mean, Abr- if you want to call, it, we'll call it the Abrams verse. Abrams verse. Yeah, he he uh, he made the those types of timelines possible so you can have those kind of like interdimensional inter whatever uh storylines so we'll see how it happens and of course he also said that hey we're not going to you know replace anton yelkin of course who passed away uh, i believe it was last month he passed away and so hey does that mean that 
they're going to go into like an alternate universe where Chekhov doesn't exist or Could does be. something else, or he's mentioned in name and he's just doing something else. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, let's let's face it. This is the right call here. I mean, especially given the circumstances surrounding his death and everything, and and he was so good. Not that that should ever matter, but he was so good. I'm not even sure they could replace him if they wanted to. You know, it just wouldn't. It's just feel weird. Right. Yeah, it wouldn't. I mean, feel this right. isn't. I mean, this isn't like replacing Terrence Howard with Don Cheadle as Rhodey. You know, because or replacing Rhodey, Jennifer on Back to the Future. Right, because they were minimal in the first movies and. At least until at least an Iron Man stands until the second movie, or later has the second movie, Rhodey wasn't a big character. Right. Chekhov has been a mainstay in the first two movies, and even going to be in the third one. So, you know, it's, 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 you can't, it's hard to really replace a character like that with somebody new. Again, unless they were like a minor character or, ha- or were a major character, but haven't really been yeah. seen yet. Yeah, and he was a scene stealer in, in both of those movies, too. So, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to replace that. Exactly, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. Come next, we're going to be talking to the voice of Sonic himself. That's right, Roger Craig Smith. He's going to sit down and talk Sonic Boom, Fire and Ice, and also the 25th anniversary of Sonic, and a bunch more other things as well. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy. Come up next. Hey, guys. This is Dexter Darden from the Maze Runner series, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, every now and then you get to get somebody on the show that's done so many great things that you almost don't even know where to start. So whether you're playing video games, watching movies, your favorite animated series, you've probably heard of this guy for Captain America, Batman, the voice of Sonic. It's Roger Craig Smith. Roger, how you doing, man? What up, guys? How are you? Thanks for having me on. We're doing awesome. As a matter of fact, speaking of which, you've voiced so many characters and continue to voice so many great iconic characters in video games. I know, right? It's amazing. I mean, it's so crazy, but at the same time, (laughs) what I love is they all kind of have different personalities. So what's it been like to kind of create so many different characters and personalities and make them your own? You know, that's uh, the the notion of making it your own is never something that I'm always... I, 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 I always say that this is a really and truly a very collaborative process. And I, I rely very heavily on my directors to kind of give me an idea as to what it is that they want to capture with with any given character because they usually have the, the, the ear of the producer or the creator or the executive producer, all the other creative people that are involved in making a character. I, I get to do the voice, yes, and that sometimes is the more sort of tangible, recognizable element to a character or at least, you know, audibly tangible. But but really and truly, I don't walk in. I've, I've never really had a gig where you walk in and you just say, okay, here's the character you're going to get, and you'll take it, and you'll like it. It's, it's always just we often throw things against the wall verbally and, uh, and see what sticks, and the director will say, hey, you know, uh, pitch it up, pitch it down, make it younger, make it older, make it scratchier, make it less scratchy, and, and, and that's how the character is developed. So when, I, when it's make it my own, it's like, no, there's, there's at least, you know, who knows how many people that are involved in making that character because of the way that the character is written, the way the character is recorded, the way that the character is uh, is sort of animated. All those things influence what people see and hear as the character, and that's just not all me. Um, it's it still is a blast. Um, I I will say that that, that if if somebody's asking me to do something that sounds similar to something I've done in the past, you know, depending upon the nature of the project, I would have to say, hey, you know, this is. This voice is a little close to like Sonic the Hedgehog or, you know, if we change up mm. the attitude a little bit, we we can we can get away with it. But 
because you know there, there's only so much you can you can do as an individual with with one set of vocal cords before you you maybe start to kind of you know go visit the same well over and over and over again. But which you know typically it's it's where the writing kind of helps you know change things around like that. So again, I'm I I love the fact that that I get to to be a part of so many different productions and do so many different characters. But as far as like you know making them all my own, I, I look at it like no, I'm I'm a part of a production team and. And we're the ones that get to create this character together. It sounds like a political answer, but it really and truly is. I mean, like, it totally okay, makes sense to me. Yeah, cool. definitely. And, and you know, one of the characters that you do too is, is Captain America, and you know, you, you were Captain America: Avengers Assemble. So when you have somebody like Chris Evans who's playing on live action on the big screen, are there certain takeaways you take from that going into the booth for when you do him in the animated version, or do you kind of like you know not, not say make it your own, but do you kind of say you know I want adjust some ways and how people view it or is it all in how he's written in the show no you know again it's it's how he's written and also just what the creative team wants to capture with this i mean if you're talking about the cinematic universe of any production that's a vastly different audience than if you're doing a an animated series um you know it's possible that you could do an animated series for a more adult audience like adult swim shows that kind of thing but typically if you're doing you know an animated superhero cartoon you're probably going to skew it to a different type of, you know, maybe less theatrical performance because you're probably dealing with concepts that have been maybe simplified for a younger audience. Right. Um, and the subtlety of, of you know, you look at Chris, who does such a great job with that character, and, and the subtlety that, that a camera can capture with an actor's performance when the camera is so close to them and all that, that's tough to animate. Uh, and it's tough to really emulate um, in, in the animated form. So, you know, there's 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 a obviously a different approach with this sort of thing. Now, whether or not the client who is in charge of the production wants you to try to emulate or even do a voice match, that's sometimes they do that. You know, they they want to get an actor who sounds exactly like you know Jack Black, right? You know, in Kung Fu Panda or that kind of thing. So it it uh, you know, and that's that's Mick Winger. Or they tell you, hey Roger, put on like fifty pounds of muscle before you come in. Yeah, well, that's a given. I mean, I do that. You know, I do that just because, you know, I mean, look at me, guys. He's no, on the sandal uh, ladder right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I often work out by, like, grabbing onto the skid of a helicopter and, you know, wrapping my other arm around <laughs> them both together, you know, slowly for the burn because you got to feel the burn. But, oh, yeah. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. No, it's uh, – it just all depends on the production. I've done stuff where they want you to try to voice match mm-hmm. um, you know, what somebody might have done in the cinematic world. And then there's other ones where it's just like, no, you know, we're going to have a complete departure of that because this is a completely different world. And so we will make it our own. Uh, and with Captain America, it really was working with Colette Sunderman, who was the director on the project. Troy Baker and I both started to do voices that sounded sort of similar. And and so uh, Colette was like, OK, we're going to have Roger, you know, uh, go a little bit deeper in his register and a little more fists on hips Boy Scout approach with his character and and have Troy be a little maybe snarkier a little uh a little more swagger to the voice kind of thing um and and that was all Colette kind of trying to differentiate between the two of us that had had been selected to do the roles uh trying to trying to find a a a a difference in the in the characters and, and in the voices so that was that wasn't me you know it wasn't me just going in and saying I'm going to do this it was it was again that collaborative uh, you know element of of uh, of a director listening and going we need to we need to have some some uh, some differences between these two guys 
Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you talk about doing a different type of voice for the same character. I mean, you've been Batman not only in Batman Arkham Origins, but you were also Batman in the Batman Unlimited series movies that are going to be coming out. So those are, you know, Batman's typically a very dark character in a cinematic universe. And for me, I grew up on like the filmation stuff, the 70s and 80s animated series type of thing that was a little bit more kid-friendly when I was younger. So what's it like to bring more of a kid-friendly version of the Cape Crusader to the screen with the Batman Unlimited movies now? You know, it's it's really cool. I, I I might get this wrong. I think it was Bruce Tim, and I think it was um, uh, Will Friedle that had said that. Uh, you know, because Will has also voiced Batman in the past. Yep. And uh, I think it was Will that had said Bruce Tim said there should be a Batman for everyone. And and really and truly, that's essentially what we've got with. Uh, that's essentially what we've got with this version of Batman in the unlimited series uh, of movies. It's it's definitely more family friendly. Um, and so, it, you know, the, the, the thematic elements to it aren't as, aren't as maybe dark as, say, some of the cinematic stuff. So it's fun for me, having done Arkham Origins, where it was, you know, a, a more coming-of-age story for Bruce Wayne and, and maybe a little darker, obviously a little bit darker because it was skewed to a, more, to a more mature audience for the interactive. But for, for Batman Unlimited, it, it's awesome. I really like being a part of, like, family-friendly productions because I always feel like it's just, it's neat to see the fantasy element of these characters um, experienced by kids for the first time because that's usually where all of us as adults who like these things got our fix as kids. We mm-hmm. saw like you know those early animated series and and really enjoyed them. Um, so for me to be a part of something like this, which is obviously skewing t- more towards a younger family friendly audience, it's a huge honor. It's and it's a blast to get to do that. Don't get me wrong, I would gladly do another version of Arkham Origins or or another you know version of Batman. To, of course. Just, yeah, it's like, you know, yes, and, and I'm on my way is the answer when everybody, whenever you get a chance for something like that. But, but it's, always, it's just always a treat to get to do something like this. And with uh, mechs versus mutants, um, it's, it's that same kind of a thing. It's, I mean, what's better than, like, mech suits? You know, uh, you've got Batman, which is already, you know, the, uh, the, the fun meters at 100%. Now you throw Batman in, like, a mech suit, and it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's too much awesome to handle. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, I like how you mentioned the whole fantasy thing, working with family stuff. And, you know, of course, one of the big characters you're known for voicing, of course, is Sonic the Hedgehog. And throughout the decades, Roger, there's been no bigger rivalry in gaming than Sonic and Mario. Now, Sonic is coming to the Nintendo 3DS in September, yep. with, of course, the release of Sonic Boom, Fire, and Ice. So yep. as a, the voice of Sonic, what has the process been like bringing him over from console to Nintendo handheld? Did you ever v- imagine Sonic would ever be on a Nintendo platform? No, I mean, it, I mean, obviously, with with the deal that Sega struck with Nintendo, that that be, soon became a reality. Um, I mean, it's just it's still fun. I mean, w- with with Sonic Boom, Fire, and Ice, we're we're basically sort of still staying in the vein of the animated series on Cartoon Network. So it's like it, it's got a more contemporary, fun feel um, in everything from the the dialogue to the performances. I'm having so much fun with the boom element of the franchise because we've we've taken it and tried to sort of um, give it a more contemporary feel. Uh, and especially with, you know, with the animated series, you've got we're, we're having a lot of fun playing around with the universe of Sonic the Hedgehog and, you know, having scenarios that typically you'd never see in a game um, just because trying to tell the story would be a little ridiculous. You know, you know, Dr. Eggman, you know, has a has a, a problem at his lair, so he needs to crash at Sonic's pad. It's you know, that's not going to make for a very, very good video game. But for the passive experience of, of a animated series, it works really well because the comedy that that we're doing in the in the series is uh, is is a new step, I think, for for the Sonic the Hedgehog character. 
and obviously like being a part of something like you know uh, the Nintendo audience, I mean, uh, is is incredible. Uh, you know, and, and again, it's also more that family friendly kind of entertainment that I sort of covet being a part of because it's it's one of those things where doing what I do. If I've got friends that have kids and they say, "Hey, you know, are you in that Dying Light game? I want to buy that Dying Light game for my kid," and I'm like, "No, no, 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 <laughs> you don't want to. <laughs> don't, don't do that. You don't want to buy that Dying Light game for your kid." And it's like, and even Arkham Origins might be a little, little bit much. And you know, or I've got. Mm. You know, friends that that, that want to like, oh, he loves you as Enzio or Ezio. You just go, no, 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 no. You, you, he's way too young for Assassin's Creed. <laughs> yeah. but, but I never, I never have to worry about telling somebody, yeah, go get you know, Sonic Boom, Fire and Ice for your kid. It'll be a fun, it'll be a fun game. It's something that the, the, that your kid will enjoy, and it's something you don't have to worry about as you're you know driving down the road wondering what your kid is in the backseat playing on his little you know Nintendo 3DS. So so it's a it's a blast for me to be a part of stuff like that and, and to be on something like Nintendo, which is usually considered to be a more family-friendly console, it's, uh, it's, it's a blast. It's an honor. Definitely. We're talking to voice actor Roger Craig Smith. Of course, Nick just mentioned Sonic Boom and Fire and Ice. I'll mention Batman Unlimited Mechs vs. Mutants, which is going to be coming out on September the 13th. Now, Roger, a couple years ago, we did a show called Killer Crossover, where we kind of had worlds collide and created some very interesting partnerships and team-ups. So yep. if you could take two of the characters that you voiced and put them together, friends or foes, who would it be? Man, maybe Percy from Clarence on Cartoon Network and probably Ezio. I think. <laughs> that's, yeah, because that's pretty interesting. That's very interesting. <laughs> like Percy's that he's that tiny little voice up here. And, but he's diabolical. And the kid the kid's like he's got a dark side to him that that's come out on a, a few of the episodes. And and it would be it would be fun to see if 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 the you know the sort of uh uh, the formidable, you know, assassin of, of Ezio Auditore da Firenze would, would actually find himself kind of going, I do not trust this little kid. I like this little boy. This boy is dangerous. I'm innocent. You know, it would be, uh, it, it, there could be a really good juxtaposition. It would be like a really bad buddy comedy, you know? This writes itself, I think. Yeah, right? Actually. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. a spinoff. <laughs> Hollywood, if you're listening, I'm ready. Screw you, Michael Fassbender. We've got yeah, a better idea. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we've ousted Michael Fassbender. We're bringing in a, a five foot five voice actor who's going to do Percy. <laughs> oh, the fans will love it. Oh, it's, it's gold. It'll be pretty money. It'll, be, it'll make billions of dollars. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Or, or, or lose billions. <laughs> well, we've had a variety of voice actors on the show, Roger, and they've all had a variety of funny moments while recording. What was the funniest thing that happened to you or a cast member while you were in the booth? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. There's always something. There's always, you know, like really and truly, like every week someone does something where they make a mistake or it's embarrassing or you read a line like really awkwardly because you, you just didn't realize what the context of the line was and that kind of thing. But there's I, I never really have like a good story for like the one funniest thing that's ever happened to me in the booth. There was a really funny moment that happened while we were actually recording um, Arkham Origins um, back in the day where it was like a lot of people were, were starting to get kind of uh, uh, up in arms over the, the voice actors using their cell phones in the booth. Because mm-hmm. um, inevitably there's a lot of downtime in between lines um, for, for actors. And, uh, and, so, and some actors tend to abuse this where it's like they're, they're just on their phone or on Twitter or whatever. And I, I'm guilty of doing the exact same thing. But, but they keep missing their cues because they're not paying attention to where we are in the, in the script and whatnot. And so at the time it was it was a, it was an issue that was being discussed at a lot of different productions and that kind of thing. 
And so the entire crew that was working on on Arkham Origins at the time, you know, behind the glass was maybe seven or eight people that were back there. And for whatever reason, something had happened where they were they were listening back to a take and I picked up my phone and I might have been texting my agent or something. And I was I was in there. I had my head down. And after a while, I realized, I'm like, gosh, it's been a little while. Like, it's been a little while since I, you know, since I heard anybody like talk to me on the talkback. And I look over to the left, you know, to the glass and every single one of them had stood up and was in front of the glass, all in a line with their heads straight down on their phone, looking at me like, you know, any minute you're ready, sir. Oh my God. (laughs) It was a good little embarrassing moment. And then there's, there's always, there's goofy lines that we say that, you know, there's things that, that sound suggestive or that sound, uh, you know, a little more risque than they actually are. And you always just kind of go, really guys, you want me to, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, especially because when you like, especially if you're doing like Percy or whomever, and you're doing that voice and it amps oh, up yeah. how funny it is, you know. Oh, oh and one of the, Robert, uh, the the engineer that works at Cartoon Network, uh, he just loves watching me do these characters because he just laughs. He's like, you know, normally he's like, your speaking voice is is a little towards the bottom end of the register, and he's like, and you you know, you're not. He says, but the the look you get on your face and to hear that tiny little voice coming out of you, he's like, it just doesn't. And so every time I'm doing Percy. I know that if I look up, Robert's just going to have this big grin on his face and he's <laughs> shaking his head. And it's it's literally like, you know, guy to guy. It's like he's going, dude, give me your man card. <laughs> like, look at you right now. You're a grown man doing that voice. Uh, so yeah, it, it's fun, man. It, it, it's such a great job for that sort of for that sort of stuff. We have stories every single time you get behind the mic. Uh, it's got to be a, a great times in there for sure. Now, I want to go back to Sonic for a second because we know that there's a movie in development that's supposed to be released sometime in 2018. So maybe you can't talk about it, but has anybody reached out to you to reprise your role for the upcoming film? And what do you think would actually make a good Sonic movie? You know what? I, I can't talk anything about it because really and truly the, the fact is I just don't know anything about it at all. And as far as like what would make a good Sonic movie, I have no idea. I mean, like like this this is where it's like I'm I'm happy to just show up. I wouldn't even know what makes a really good you know uh, uh, Sonic script for you know for for Boom the series, uh, let alone an entire you know an entire film. Um, but this is where you know I, I'm really intrigued to see what they do come up with. And regardless of whether or not I I I, I have the honor of getting to be involved, which of course I would jump at the chance, but. Uh, regardless, this is a different this is a different entity, a different project, and a different you know production crew altogether. So the notion that they would stick with an unknown voice actor by Hollywood standards uh, is, is you know that, that's a pretty slim chance that I might be involved. But it, I'm I'm actually just anxious to kind of see what it is that they decide they're going to do because I've heard that it's a you know a potential live action CG. Um, version of this. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, like for all we know, it might, they might go classic Sonic, and Sonic doesn't even talk. You know, it, it, who knows? Like what they're going to end up doing. But I'm I'm as excited as anybody else to see what they're going to do. I know that Sega, you know, had some announcements, and they were talking about the fact that they want you know Sonic the Hedgehog to be an entertainment brand, uh, meaning just you know all forms of entertainment. So this this could be a really cool step in the direction of. of of what I've been calling a sort of renaissance of of this character by upping the quality of things and also just making it a more contemporary, a more contemporary character that'll reach a new audience. Uh, so so I'm I'm all for anything that keeps a character that I've you know had the luxury of playing for six years. If it keeps that that character, um, you know, in the uh, in the sort of limelight of or at least on the radar of people knowing who the character is, then it's a good thing for everybody involved. Oh, definitely. And, you know, for people who might not know, you actually also voice characters for Bleach and Naruto. What is it about those shows and their styles of storytelling and animation that you just love the most? 
You know, probably the complexity of the stories, I guess. Um, I'm always amazed with anime at, at how they just, they're so detail-oriented on so many things, it's incredible. Um, and and, and the, these are very, sometimes very convoluted um, and very uh, complex storylines. Um, so it's just incredible to be a part of of something like that. And, and for, for us as actors, very often with anime, because it's already been done, you know, in Japanese, um, and we're stepping in to kind of, you know, do the, do the localization of it. We don't have all the context, and, and a lot of people don't realize just how quick and down and dirty, you know, an anime voiceover session can go. It, it Sometimes you're coming in to play a character you've played in the past. Sometimes you're coming in and you don't even know what you're going, going to be doing once you get in the booth. And the, direct, the director will basically say, look, um, you're, you know, you're a 24-year-old uh, young man who's a member of the Hidden Leaf, you know, ninja village, and you're out to avenge your father's death, and your first loop is at line 287, and you turn to, you know, loop 287, and the line is, you know, no! And so you just go, okay, well, how do we want this guy to sound? And it's like, you know, uh, uh, no. And they go, oh, too old. You're like, no! Too, too not tough enough. Like, no! And they go, yeah, that's it. That's the guy. And then it's boop. No, and they go cool. Moving on, your next loop is at three hundred one. You're like, okay, I've I've established a character, and it's just like you're off and running. <laughs> so it's you know it, it's it's a it's a fun thing for as an actor because you're just you're sort of like throwing a bunch of different stuff against the wall and seeing how you know seeing what sticks. Um, but it's you see it all assembled after the fact and just go, man, I had no idea that there there was the, the depth of story in these things, and and they have just such a a rich history um, and a huge fan base and as far as the manga goes that it's like, you know, to be a part of that in the anime form is really cool. Oh, de- definitely. I just want to say real quick, you're doing saying no and those different levels of voice is very, very impressive. Like that was right. just awesome. Again, yeah. you guys are so lucky to have me. It's- <laughs> I know we are. I keep telling Gosh. people that. I said no three different ways. I mean, who can do that? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> that quick was span too. No, I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the compliment, but it is just one of those funny things where it's just like, you know, like that. I don't think anything of that because it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, right. And it's so many different languages, too. I know, right? Yeah, one was Spanish. No! And English. No! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty impressive. Well, Roger, speaking of impressive, what's impressive is you're following on Twitter. So where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, It's just at Roger Craig Smith, R-O-G-E-R Craig Smith. Um, And and I I have a personal uh, Facebook page, so I don't really – I don't do fans on Facebook. Um, and I also uh, a, a new passion of mine has been uh, photography and just kind of getting out as a hobby only. And uh, and I have a, a, a profile on a, on a website that's known as five hundred px five zero zero px. And I've had a few fans that you know wanted to follow me to see some of the stuff that I'm doing on there. And I'll I'll try to post photos on Twitter here and there. But really, I'm just I'm just kind of active on Twitter. I, I like that interface. Um, you know, obviously I'm an actor, so I, I try to self promote and I try to promote on behalf of the projects that I'm lucky enough to be a part of. So Twitter, as far as a format, um, is excellent for that. Uh, just because it's it's so easy to kind of in a, in a clear and concise manner just just get a, a you know the, the 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 crucial information out to people that would be interested in it. So I I'm just a fan of Twitter. I. I think I have an Instagram account, but I re- rarely do anything with it. Um, that. <laughs> you know, so it's just like Twitter. Twitter's the best way. And there's a lot to keep up with, not just the photography, but the fact that Batman Unlimited Max Ferguson's Mutants debuts at San Diego Comic-Con, actually, on July the 24th. If you want to get it digitally or on Blu-ray or on DVD, you can get it September 13th. And if that's not enough, you can catch Roger Craig Smith. Sonic Boom Fire and Ice is going to be available on September 27th for the Nintendo 3DS. Voice actor to the stars, Roger Craig Smith, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. This was fun. Thank you. So, James, I don't know if it actually occurred to you, but after talking to Roger, we've now talked to both the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog 
and of course Mario because we talked to Charles Martin that back in DC last month. That's crazy, man, and I didn't even realize that until you put it up on Facebook earlier. And I was like, wow, we really have talked to maybe two of the biggest iconic names in video games. Period. Yeah. Yeah, some pretty, how pretty crazy big is that? Well, again, you look at, at, at Roger's IMDb page, and it's just a laundry list of characters and everything that he does, and it's just it's astounding. I mean, you know certain things he did, like the Captain America thing you probably knew, and Sonic thing people are probably familiar with. But then you keep going, you're like, oh, wait, that's right, he was Batman. Oh, wait, he was in Assassin's Creed. Oh, oh wait. wait. And then you just keep going, you're like, yeah, when am like, I going to be, when is this going to be over? I can't yeah, believe he's like, done this much stuff. Yeah, and you're like, oh, wait, he did Bleach in the Naruto. Like, oh, my yeah, God. And he, was he, did... and he was in Clarence and all this other stuff. Yeah, and it's just, it's a lot of great stuff and a lot of great, great things that he did. And, of course, you know, again, when you go pick up Sonic Boom for your Nintendo 3DS, and, I mean, how crazy is that? Like, I just talked to him, I asked him that, like, did you ever imagine that Sonic would ever be on the Nintendo platform? Because there was just no. that, that decade <laughs> where Sega and Nintendo just hated each other. You know, they were ultimate rivals. At each other's throats. And then now you've got Sonic and Mario at, at Olympic events doing stuff together. I mean, right. It's, just, it's one of those things, man, where I never thought I'd see the day, especially when I was younger, being a Nintendo guy and I'd Sega friends and there was that rivalry. Yep. I never thought I'd see the day. But at the same time, it's cool because you've got... Awesome guys like Roger Craig Smith and Charles Martinet who can actually work together in in games together. So I think that that's awesome. That is really, really awesome. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Don Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Roger Craig Smith for coming on talking Sonic Boom with us. And, of course, Batman as well. Tons of other things as well. And, uh, hey, again, hit him up on Twitter and hit us up on Twitter as well. We're at DonNerdy757. We're also at Merc with one arm and Mr. Witham, you tell them where they can find you on that I, website with a bird. I am at James Ace Witham, but you know, if you can't remember all that stuff, man, I'm not going to remember that. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Go to the About Us section. You can follow us through that way. You want to find out how to follow Roger, we'll give you that information as well. You want to pre order Batman Unlimited Max vs. Mutants, going to be coming out on September the 13th. We'll have that on our This Week section. Also, Sonic Boom Fire and Ice, we'll have a pre order for that as well for September the 27th. Plus, you can find out all the other stuff we talked about on this week's show. Maybe you went right to the interview and like, oh, I need to go back and see what they reviewed for the comics or This Week in Geektainment. It's all there at the This Week section and a ton more at downandnerdypodcast.com. That's right. And, of course, don't forget facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. And, as always, press comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics. And please keep a hold of your rings. <laughs>